We're in a series called Proud to be an American, an American Christian. We're just being real and honest with what's uh, on everybody's mind, whether you want to think about it or not. We've got some very important things coming up in our world. We got an election in just under a couple weeks, and uh, it's important. It's a big deal. It's going <laughs> to be a big one. And that's a time as a church just to also think about critical things, to be equipped. Do we know how to respond to all the messages we hear? And I've been very honest and frank in, in sharing with you guys that I, there, there's, some, there's some very negative messages coming our way. It's, it's almost in vogue. It's almost cool now to just rip on America. It's just, just, just to point out all of America's flaws and, and paint in broad stroke that, yeah, so America must be a failed experiment. And while America is not perfect, and while our founding fathers were certainly not perfect, as we've looked back into the history books and looked into the facts of what they actually have said and what they actually desired to build, I believe that as Christians in America, where God has placed us, there is so much to be proud of, so much to defend, so much to promote so much to share with others, to say, wow, they really got some things right that produced the opportunity for us and for others and for those who've come before us to thrive in a way that very few populations and civilizations ever really even had the opportunity. There's a, there's a flag that I... I'm begging my wife to allow me to have a tattoo of. It's a hard no, but let's put this flag up. This is an artist's rendering of one of the first ever American flags. This was flown by the Continental Army. This was flown by the First Navy, minus the edits on the right-hand side. This is a, an artor, artist's rendering of one of the first ever American flags. And what I love about it is I believe it captures the essence of what the founding fathers were trying to do. Their vision, their dream was liberty. So this is often called the liberty tree flag. They were trying as flawed human beings to, I mean, it's so hard to even imagine. It's such a rare thing. They had, in a sense, a blank slate, create a new country. And it's just unfathomable, the, the, the pressure that they had, the opportunity they had. What was the vision? What was the dream? And in some ways, liberty is the answer. They desired to try to construct a government that would build a tree of liberty or create the opportunity for a society to experience liberty. At the base of it, is an appeal to God. If you weren't with us a couple weeks ago, please go back on weareelevation.com and watch the messages because there is some incredible, beautiful things about our founding. But one was the founders made a clear appeal to God. It was a phrase that they used over and over. We see it clearly in the Declaration of Independence. And once you know the history 
behind what brought us to the Declaration of Independence, I believe it could as equally be called a Declaration of Dependence on God. It says it right in there, that they say, God, test our intentions, and if they are just, then be on our side to make this happen. It's an appeal to heaven. And they made that the foundation. A dependence on God was the foundation of the society. They said, we cannot do this without God. We would be fools to do this without God. And from that, from what is very clearly, in their own words, a Judeo-Christian worldview and dependence upon God, from there they trusted that morality would flow and that that is the building block of society, religion and morality. John Adams even said that the, decla- or that the Constitution was written for a religious and moral people. It doesn't work for anyone else. And that's where it goes into the individual rights that we see in the Constitution. They're meant to flow from our dependence on God and the morality or character that we have through that relationship with God. That leads to individual rights. Man, they're constructing this beautiful tree of liberty. And that leads to today what we're going to talk about. But it's all, it is intentional, it's sequential. So we're going to put up a quote here, and we're going to play a game. Which presidential candidate said this? No, just kidding. This is Thomas Jefferson. A wise and frugal government, which shall leave men free to regulate their own pursuits of industry and improvement and shall not take from the mouth of labor bread it has earned. This is the sum of good government. I wish somebody would say that, actually. (laughs) Put differently, I mean, this is so profound. The government is not responsible to give you a good life. The government is supposed to create the space for you to have the opportunity for you to build a good life, thus to pursue happiness, as the Declaration of Independence said. This is a profoundly American value, personal responsibility. The idea is that you and I and all of us have the personal responsibility to steward our life well, to invest it wisely, to work hard, to persevere, and in the belief that it will build a better life for yourself. So where does this idea come from? How far back does it go? So I want to take us to the first two Earliest settlements, Jamestown and Plymouth, a little economic history. And I will say a, a caveat here as we get into economic history, for, the, for today we will set aside the real and glaring issue of slavery which tragically did p- take place starting in Jamestown, but just to be bold and continue with our our series in, on that front, we are just going to address slavery head-on next Sunday. So that should be fun for me. You can pray this is a good week. Or maybe I eat too much Halloween candy and don't show up next Sunday. 
No, it's going to be, it's going to be good. But for today, let's, let's look at the, the economics here and where we began with this notion of personal responsibility. So you can look into the history books, and it's very interesting. Both of the earliest settlements of Jamestown and Plymouth, they tried a collective agrarian society, not built on personal responsibility, but that there was, you know, not built on private property and hard work, but rather, uh, let's just, uh, you know, kind of do your best and we'll all share it and see how it works. It was disastrous. Governor William Bradford. Now, these are pilgrims. These, these are Puritan Christians. I mean, these are the, some of the most radical Christians you will ever find. It didn't even work for them. I mean, and it was their idea. It was kind of like, hey, let's try it. Like, hey, the book of Acts talked about, you know, everybody just share everything. Now, maybe it was because there was only 44 of them and there was about 70 others that were, you know, of a different mindset that came over on the Mayflower. They were merchants. They were adventurers. They were tradesmen. They were, you know, not the Puritans. So, you know, but nobody knows. Governor William Bradford was not specific. But this is what he did say about this idea of, the collective agrarian society. Quote, it caused much confusion and discontent and retarded much employment that would have been to their benefit and comfort and caused people to, quote, allege weakness and inability. Is that quote up there? No, it's not. That's okay. I don't think I, that's not, that's, that's my fault. But listen to some of the language. When there was no private property, there was no personal responsibility, it was just, hey, let's all kind of do our best and we'll all share. The governor said after one year, what had happened was a lot of alleged weakness and inability. Oh, I can't do it today. After many people literally starved to death, Governor Bradford made two important changes. He said, it's not working. This is disastrous. So we're, we're changing it right now. Private property, free enterprise, personal responsibility. And within a year, this is his, the quote of the changes. This had very good success, for it made all hands very industrious. So as much more corn was planted than otherwise would have been. And by any means, the governor or any other could use and saved him a great deal of trouble, and gave far better content. That's old language, but in other words, people were happier, they were more industrious, they grew a lot more corn, and so from literally a lack to where people were dying to an abundance, they had more than they needed, and now what starts to happen? Trade. Jamestown had a similar experience. In 1607, which is 13 years before the pilgrims showed up, Captain John Smith was appointed the new leader, and among his first messages to the community was this, quote, that their recent experience and misery, oh, that one's good, all right. The recent experience and misery were sufficient to persuade everyone to mend his ways, that they must not think that either his pains or the purses of the adventures at home would forever maintain them in sloth and idleness, that he knew that many deserved 
more honor and a better reward than was yet to be had, but that for the greatest part of them must be more industrious or starve. That it was not reasonable that the labors of 30 or 40 honest and industrious men should be consumed to maintain 150 loiterers. That therefore everyone had to work, excuse me, everyone that work not should not eat. And that, by the way, the last thing, last phrase, is a quote of 2 Thessalonians 3.10. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. So Smith, same exact experience, saw this disaster taking place. So he called for the biblical principle. Interesting. Although Jamestown was not, I would say, they were not a, a rooted in a spiritual uh, conviction like the pilgrims clearly were. The pilgrims were essentially missionaries. They desired to reach the unreached people groups, as it said in their mission statement, to take the kingdom of God and advance it to the uttermost parts of the earth. Jamestown was clearly economic. But even that was failing. Because it was like the people were there like, oh, hey, well, I'm just here for gold, so let me know when the gold shows up. And in the meantime, I'll eat your corn if you, you know, produce some for me. And it wasn't working. So Smith called for this biblical principle of hard work. And he had to say, if you don't work, you don't eat. Not surprisingly, things shifted in the colony. A well was dug, crops were grown, the death rate dropped dramatically. And it's just very interesting. This is historical fact. The two earliest settlements, English settlements, attempted just a collective society. Let's just all share. Sounds good. Sounds great, right? It was disastrous for both until they implemented the policies of private property and personal responsibility. And it works because it's tapping into some core aspects of how God made us and some core temptations of the human soul. Listen to the 2 Thessalonians passage that Paul, where he lays down that rule, hey, if you're not working, you're not eating, there's, there's more to it. Let's, let's go to it. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus, that you keep away from any brother who's walking in idleness and not walking in accord of the tradition that you receive from us. So Paul, interestingly, had to teach the churches this truth. For you yourselves know how how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone else's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It's not because we don't have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus to do their work quietly and earn their own living. Aspects of the temptations common to all and the way, the nature in which God created us. We can be tempted when given the opportunity toward idleness, laziness. Well, let someone else do it for me. But in contrast, what we see here is a tapping into the Old Testament 
Genesis passages, the reality that work is good. Work is good for the soul in its proper place. Genesis 2.15 says this, The Lord God took man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it, to steward it well. This is very important to notice. This is before the fall. Before sin had entered into the world. In the idyllic garden of perfection, God says, work it. I mean, we have to see that as, as a crucial picture of how God created humanity. We are created by a creative God. And part of that image that he stamped us with is to be creative like him. He worked six days in creating the world and then the Sabbath day of rest. Creating, working is a good thing. It reflects the nature of God. Work is clearly part of God's good creation. And if we want to go back a little bit further into Genesis 1.28, as God said, I'm going to make humanity in my image, then God said this, verse 28, God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply Fill the earth and subdue it. And scholars agree that this is not simply a call to just have babies. This is the idea of work. And as humans, we are meant to fill the earth. In our work, in our productivity, we're meant to fill the earth as representatives of the image of God. We're called to work and create And in that relationship with him where we're creative and innovative and productive, it fills the earth with things that reflect the goodness and nature of God. I mean, this is an incredible piece of how God has wired and created humanity. In fact, it's a command that through work, we get to play a part in a world of fruitfulness and multiplication. Be fruitful. Multiply. We carry God's glory. We carry the image of God. And in relationship with God, we're now to work in order to multiply, in order to be fruitful, to see the glory of God cover the earth. God promises from the beginning a fruitful world that will multiply as we partner with him and fulfill our creative purpose. So to put it in the negative form, to not work, to not have the opportunity to work, to not have the opportunity to create and produce robs people of the divine dignity that God has put in them to participate and co-labor with him in productivity and fruitfulness that God created each and every single human for. In the Reformation, Martin Luther tapped into this truth and he furthered it and helped to break down some of the the sacred and secular barriers that had existed. 
Where at the time, the, the common ethos, the common thought was, oh, only the clergy do sacred work. Everyone else is just, it's mundane. It doesn't really have any type of eternal value or honor to God. And Martin Luther said, no way. That's not it at all. Look back. Look at Genesis. Look where 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. That all of life can be lived under this umbrella of being with God, partnering with God, and living for God's glory. So he made the great argument that even the, the cobbler who's creating shoes is, is doing, if they're doing it for the glory of God, that is just as sacred as an activity as the, the priest preaching the messages. And that was a very radical message at the time. But it's a very biblical message. There is no such thing as mundane. Where, where does God's word say, yeah, what you're doing doesn't matter to God? All of life is meant to be lived under the umbrella of God's glory. Stamped in the image of God. As humans, we are made to be fruitful and multiply and give God the glory in what we produce. So everything, the Reformation was arguing, every job, Every work can be done with purpose. So it brought a nobility to work. That said, if work is noble, if work can be glory to God, then what that does is it breeds passion. It enables perseverance. It fosters creativity. It encourages innovation. And ultimately leads to Prosperity in the work, producing good things, because now you're infused with, with purpose and passion and creativity, and good things result from that. This type of work or type of perspective on work became known famously now as the Protestant work ethic, which a well-known sociologist from Germany, Max Weber, in 1904, wrote and published a work, a book, that is now standard textbook in economic theory classes. It's called The Protestant Work Ethic and the Spirit of Capitalism, and how they naturally have some very, very powerful connections. In, in that book, he, he lauds, he applauds, he praises the contributions to economic prosperity that Protestant Christians have made through the ages, through their various values that lead to saying work is good, hard work is good, perseverance is good, creativity is good, honoring your work is good, doing it to the best of your ability is good, doing it to glorify God is good. And he pointed these things out that were especially seen in the American experiment of colonial America. I would argue that in some ways, this is all ultimately about being good stewards with life. Personal responsibility, this deeply American value, has clear economic implications 
that are, I would say, from a biblical perspective, good and true, but there's also a bigger picture to it. This is personal responsibility. Now, if you want to put it through the bigger picture of the biblical lens, this is just steward your life well. When Jesus talked about stewardship, this is every aspect of life, every single thing you do in life, every single thing is meant to be done with the lens of, am I stewarding what God has given me well? Told a very famous parable. Won't go too much into it, but real quick. He says, Jesus says like this, life is like a man going on a journey, called his servants and entrusted to them his property. Interesting. So God's the one going on a journey. We're the ones receiving. And what are we receiving? His property. Everything you have in life is from God. Everything, according to Jesus. To one, he gave five talents. To another, two. To another, one. Each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them. And he made five talents more. On and on and on. And it goes. You know the story, the the guy who did one, had one, did nothing. He got scared. He buried it in the ground. When the master returned and settled accounts with them. Settled accounts. In other words, the picture is all of us are going to have to give an account to God how we stewarded our life. And it's not about whether you have five, two, one, or 20. When you stand before Jesus the idea of saying, well, that guy had this many and that girl had that many. So Jesus is going to be like, I don't, in this moment, care at all. What did I give you and what did you do with it? What they did or what they did, what they had or what they did means nothing to me. An account of our life with what God gave us, what did we do with it? And so the story goes on. And Jesus said to the one who had five talents and delivered five more, his master said, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over what I gave you. So I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Same thing happens with the person who did two. So it's about being faithful, being good stewards of what we have been given. And then the one said, oh, I, I buried it in the sand. And man, that is not a good place to be. Jesus says, you wicked and slothful servant. Wicked and slothful. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and I gather where I scattered no seeds. And you ought to have at least invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own. Wow. That's crazy. At the end of our life, God's going to be like, what did you do with my stuff? It's my life. No, it, it was mine. What did you do with it? So take the talent away from him and give it to the one who has ten. And it, wow. Don't wanna, that's a whole awesome, I mean, it's, this passage is so deep. But let's keep it focused. How are we, how are you investing your personal responsibility, how are you investing your life so that there is kingdom multiplication? That's Jesus' question at the end of your life. Are you stewarding well your mind? 
Are you stewarding well your strength? Are you stewarding well your time, your effort, your energy, your, your relationships, your, your spirit? So that in all of those things, God's glorified and there's kingdom multiplication. Going back to Genesis, what did God promise? What's the world that God set up? God promised a world that would be fruitful, where things would multiply. But what Jesus teaches, and we see in Genesis and throughout God's word, but you have the personal responsibility. I have the personal responsibility to steward that life well, to invest it wisely so that it multiplies. That's personal responsibility. Now let's bring it back into the the founders. As Jefferson said, a wise and frugal government, I'll, I'll insert this, a wise and frugal government, as Jefferson would say, shall create the space, the freedom and the peace, the opportunity for the parable of the talents to take place. That's the sum of good government. A second key influence in all of this economic philosophy was a a Scottish thinker named Adam Smith, very famous. I don't even know if it's taught anymore in in school, but I remember uh, reading those books. Well, you know, having them assigned back in high school, but (laughs) we know how that goes. Now I read them because they're interesting. Two books, Moral Sentiments and the Wealth of Nations. Right at a time when the revolution was brewing, these books were published. And it was, in some ways, they call Adam Smith the father of economic philosophy. There was some ideas in there that really had not been captured like he captured. I would argue that a lot of them are in the Bible, like I'm talking about today, but he put them specifically in the economic strain like no one had. Here's a, here's a quote from him. Let's put up the, yeah, there it is. And, and look at that quote and how similar it is to Jefferson's, by the way. Adam Smith says, In the ideal economic situation, every man is left perfectly free to pursue his own interest in his own way. The sovereign, meaning the government, is completely discharged from a duty which no human wisdom or knowledge could ever be sufficient, the duty of superintending the industry of private people. That's, that is abundantly influential on Thomas Jefferson. John Jefferson said, quote, Wealth of Nations is the best book to read, end quote, in regard to economics. There's, it's absolutely... Jefferson built on Adam Smith here, this, this sense that what does a good government do? A good government, wise and frugal, leaves men free to regulate their own pursuits of industry. So the founding fathers here were in this imperfect way, imperfect, trying to establish in the Constitution, in the Declaration of Independence, a model That was of the people, by the people, for the people, all the way through. And in economics, that there would be a personal responsibility that would rule the day. That would be the ethos of this fledgling American people. So if we go back to our Liberty Tree flag, what you can see 
is it's building. It's very intentionally building on a dependence upon God that leads to virtuous character, that then leads to the individual rights that each of us had. It's supposed to then lead to each and every single person taking ownership of the individual personal responsibility they have in their life for their actions as a citizen in their work. That's the founder's vision. The land of opportunity. Has this been true? That's an interesting question. Now, we'll, we'll address next week in ways that it was difficult. It wasn't perfectly true for everyone. But what I also like to look at are the statistics. What's happened over the last 200 years of this experiment gaining ground getting a foothold, and being shared with the rest of the world. And so I want to take us to a few images here. So Jake, if we could jump to the one about poverty levels. So this is from 1820 to 2015, and this is the number of people across the world living in extreme poverty. So in 1820, this fledgling nation of America is testing out these these economic ideals of personal responsibility and free enterprise. At that point in the entire world, 94% of people lived in extreme poverty, where day-to-day -day was a question. I mean, 94. That's out of 100 people, only six people in the world out of 100 were not essentially living day-to-day, meal-to-meal. That is so intense. And fast forward to 2015, when the number of people now is, nope, no, no, go back. <laughs> the number of people is now less than 10% living in extreme poverty. And economic, economicists are all saying that if we do well as a society and as a nation, there is for the first time ever in the history of the world there is the opportunity to eliminate extreme poverty. And anyone who says that the American experiment does not have a direct correlation with this graph is just absolutely lying to you. This is the American experiment that has become the worldwide experiment. On the next level, let's look at life expectancy. So from the 1500s to 2019, look at life expectancy across the world. So again, you got the, the fledgling nation of America starting to do their thing with innovation and invention going wild because of the personal responsibility and free enterprise. And, and look at the overall effect on our world from in this, even in the 1700s, 1800s, life expectancy was around 40, 40 years old for the whole world. I'm supposed to be dead. The whole world. And now we, are, we have reached something in the world that's never happened before, where the life expectancy of the, in, across the whole world is over 70, and some places are over 80. Again, to say that the American experiment of personal responsibility, which 
which ushered in an era of innovation and creativity and invention that the world had never seen to say that this is not directly connected to the American experiment, they're just lying. I mean, you, you can, even today, you can go look in, at the, the Forbes list of the richest people in the world. And it's a, it's a very interesting list. Uh, currently, some of them on there, Jeff Bezos of Amazon, Bill Gates of Microsoft, Steve Jobs of Apple, you know, posthumous Larry Page of Google, Mark Zuckerberg of Facebook, Elon Musk of Tesla. Now, these are not personally heroic figures to me in their life or their, or their following of God, but they illustrate the American ideal of personal responsibility in the sense that most of these world changers in economics created their product in their garage or their dorm room. And it was the American ideal, the spirit of personal responsibility, the Protestant work ethic, the biblical notion of work at its best is supposed to be a creative process. Now, they may not know it yet. I don't know them personally, but Work at its best is supposed to be a, a participation with our creator where we're living out the passions that he's wired us for, where we're getting in touch with the, the way he's designed us to design things, the way he's created us to create. The best of our gifts and passions are being put into being productive. So there is great innovation and invention and creativity in the work process. And that's what you see in this group of the richest people in the world. They all innovated, created something in their garage. There's something absolutely fundamentally American about that reality that is in complete contrast with, way, with the way that government was set up for the first many thousand years of human existence. That the Americans and Adam Smith and the Protestant work ethic were all working together saying, no, 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 there's something different we need to try. Personal responsibility. That we don't need the government, and this is the way that it worked. It, back in the day, it was, you are born into your job. Based on your class. Based on your family history. What the state says you have to do. The government dictates economics and thus your future. There is little opportunity to change it. The state always wins. The royalty always wins. They're always in control. You're a tiny little cog in their wheel. You really have no choice and no say in that. And the Americans, with our, all these values that we have seen over the last number of weeks, dependence on God that leads to personal morality that wakes us up and says, whoa, we have individual rights that the government doesn't give us, that God gives us, that the government is supposed to protect, and that leads to individual responsibility, creativity, and now this crazy idea that, wait, wait a minute, maybe the government controlling the economics and telling everybody what they to do for their benefit isn't the best way to do this. What if we each get to have the responsibility to build our own future? And you get wild innovations, wild creativity, wild inventions. I mean, if you go and you just look at inventions, Google in inventions, the, the list of American inventions is just incredible. I mean, <laughs> Elon Musk has essentially built a rocket 
in his garage and is now, I mean, competing with NASA, saying, we don't need you anymore, NASA. I can build my own rockets. And is, I mean, it's, it's amazing where we've come. And I'm, again, I'm not saying that all of this is great and perfect and without critique, but there is an ideal behind it that is really important. Personal responsibility. That work is good. Creating is good. Persevering in that is good. Taking personal responsibility to make it happen is good. But let me address an important question. Are there excesses in this? Are there dangers? Are there exploitations? For sure. Especially as Christians. And so this is where, to me, as we look at this, we have to put the idea of economics and personal responsibility in the bigger picture of stewardship. In the bigger picture of economics and the personal responsibility in that area is but a piece of a larger picture, a much larger picture of life with God. And there are various spheres of life with God. And economics is not king. Jesus said it like this. No one can serve two masters. For he will either hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. You cannot love both God and money. Or 1 Timothy 6.10 says it like this, The love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. So that, that right there is the accountability check. And you can look into the history of economics over the last 200 years, and in some ways there are easy uh, examples of exploitation and excess and greed. They're easy. That doesn't mean the principle of personal responsibility is wrong. It means it needs to be held in check with other values. That's what the Bible's for. <laughs> it holds us in check to say, Yes, personal responsibility is good. Yes, you're meant to be fruitful and multiply. Yes, your work is good, but it's not God. And so that's where the accountability comes in from God's word to keep our values in check. And that is part, I would say, as Americans, where we're, we do have that prophetic voice and that prophetic call to where we see those excesses. And there's actually lots of good documentaries out there on the internet that are fairly easy to find to see where companies and businesses have grown so big and the love of money takes over and causes all sorts of injustices. And that's not a new thing. God's word says it like this in Isaiah 58 where people were fasting and they were praying and there was no result happening and they were like, why is this not working? And God said specifically, among other things, in Isaiah 58, 3, on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. And what the text is saying is, and because of that, your fast means nothing to me. And there are many passages like that where God calls for the, the fair and just treatment of workers for the awareness to stay away from greed and that money is not our God and to fall in love with it, it will produce all kinds of evils. And that is very true today. And Micah, our awesome youth pastor, gave me that phrase of follow the money. And it's a good one. You can find a lot of evil 
in this world at the root of the big money trail. It's true. And the Bible says that's going to happen. The Bible does not say money is the root of all evil. If you've heard that, that's a very bad translation. It does not say money is the root of all evil. It says the love of money is, the, is a root of all kinds of evils. That's a very different thing. But when the love of money takes over, you will find all kinds of evils. However, it doesn't take away the biblical truth and principle that God gave us from the beginning. Work is good. Be fruitful. Multiply. Take personal responsibility. And then, when you do, when you are fruitful and multiply, what do you do with it? Be generous. All throughout the Bible. Be generous. Whether it's the the Old Testament commands to leave the gleanings of your field, so that the poor can come and do their work to get food for themselves, which is an interesting thing. Now, don't just give it to them. It says leave so they can make the choice to come and work and get food for themselves. Or whether it's the, the New Testament calls to when you have a surplus, give to those in need so that when you're in need, those who have a surplus can give to you. There's calls for generosity. There's calls for gratitude. Coming back to the picture of the of the talents, the parable of the talents, that it's all God's anyways. So if we ever get to that point where it's, wow, look at the kingdom that I have built by my power and my glory, like King Nebuchadnezzar said, then be expecting to grow some long hair and some claws and and get, get humbled. But true, healthy, personal responsibility is good. Something to be proud of as Americans and something to take this this smattering of, of Scripture, these various tensions that are in Scripture, to process them, to, to ask God to show us how, how we can be living this out. What do we need to hear today in our life? How do we need to take this and be equipped to, to share with others, to encourage others, to challenge others, to promote that there are some Things, this, this one in particular of personal responsibility is something to be proud of, something to come back to in our country, something that really is in the long run the best for everyone. All while recognizing that work and, and productivity have their place within the spheres of life with God. But it's all ultimately, all of life is meant to be steward well before God. For his glory. All right, let's. I will sing a new song. I will sing a new song.